If you hang around in Christian circles long enough, at some point, you'll probably hear about the red heifer. Not because it's common for churches to necessarily go verse by verse through the book of Numbers. Um, Perhaps you'll hear about the red heifer during an exposition of the ninth chapter of Hebrews. But most likely it will occur because of contemporary events where red heifers are being sought in Israel for their presence and their use as what is esteemed to be, what is seen to be a kind of necessary prerequisite for purity and then subsequently for the rebuilding of the temple. Recently, uh, CBN News had a, uh, a news segment, the video of which had an accompanying article beneath it entitled, Texas Red Heifer's Arrival Stirs Prophetic Excitement in Israel. And as was essentially noted in the title, and you see it in the article, there was, quote, a recent delivery of five red heifers from Texas to Israel. And you find out, as you either watch the video or you read the article, that there were rabbis from the Temple Mount Institute that approached uh, a man who was a part of an organization um, known as Building Israel, Bone Israel, um, to see if he could help them find these unique Red heifers. When I say red heifers, you're just thinking of a red cow. So they wanted to see if he could help find them. Now the reason being, the reason why they wanted to find them is because these red heifers would be offered and then subsequently their ashes would be used to purify water that would be used to purify, among others, prospectively Jewish priests. This is seen by those who are seeking the red heifers, as a necessary prerequisite for the building of the temple. As one man in the video um, from Israel 365 is recorded as saying, some Jews go every single day to a ritual bath, to a mikvah, in order to approach God in prayer and in purity. However, it is not the same because we don't have the red heifer. Once we have the red heifer, we'll be completely pure and we'll be able to rebuild the temple. You go through the article, and the article ends with the statement. Remember, there's a video and there's an article beneath it. In the 12th century, the Jewish sage Maimonides said that throughout the first and second, temp- first and second temple periods, there were nine red heifers. Now, from what I've seen, that number is debated, but nonetheless, that's what he said. Um, he predicted the tenth would signal the appearance of the Messiah. That explains why many are excited about the arrival. So you can see for many, the significance of the red heifer is connected with what they hope to be forthcoming end-time eschatological events. So leaving aside, right, like the number of the red heifers referenced by Maimonides, I've seen others have a different historical count. I've seen some say six or seven. Um, You see wherein for many the significance lies. Its connection, the red heifer's connection with its presence and subsequent usefulness for offering, and then prospectively how that's connected with the building of another temple. Now, for Christians, it's important to know, knowing that the Messiah has come and knowing that the, that the Messiah has died for the sins of His people, there is no longer a need for animal sacrifice. Moral purity, right? Ethical purity. The way that we live our lives as Christians, there is to be that kind of purity, a moral purity, an ethical purity, but there is no longer a need for ritual purity. The fulfillment 
to which all the rituals pointed. The fulfillment of the Old Testament offerings. The fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood. And so on. The fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. And so on. Has found its fulfillment. These were types and shadows. And the reality of which has come and is found in Jesus Christ. Yet, knowing that Jesus will come again. And that, for instance, Paul wrote that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, quote, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, that one will sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. In light of that, many Christians, so not necessarily all Christians, many Christians expect that a third temple would be built. But you wouldn't expect Christians to build it. Because there's no need for another temple. There's no need for the sacrificial system that was joined to the temple because Jesus, was, Jesus has already come. But for those Jews who have not received Jesus as Messiah, you can see why, at least for some of them, those who would believe that the purity that they need can be found and sought in a red heifer and so on, and that its presence is a necessary prerequisite to the building of the temple, you could see why they would seek such a one. Now, here's the question. From a biblical point of view, is that the significance of the red heifer? Because there'll be many people, if you think about the red heifer, many people would say, okay, red heifer equals some sort of connection with what's going on in Israel, some sort of connection with prospectively another temple being built, but then you want to ask the question, is that the biblical significance of the red heifer? I think what we're going to come to find rather quickly in our message is that the answer is no. No, it is not. Its significance, the significance of the red heifer, is much greater. It, along with the ritual that accompanied its offering and the application of its ashes mingled with flowing water, point well to the one to whom the temple itself pointed. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. With that said, what we're going to see today, we're going to see A, what the Old Testament says about the red heifer. B, what the New Testament says says about the red heifer, <laughs> and see the manifold ways in which the red heifer and that which is tied to it points to Christ. So we're making our way to Numbers 19. Before we do, let's create a little bit of context. Uh, the chapter of Scripture that speaks about the red heifer in the Old Testament uh, is Numbers 19. Rather, a significant amount of detail in that chapter is found. See, having ritual purity from having come into contact with dead bodies might seem unnecessary to us, right? Like the average person isn't bumping into corpses and isn't wondering whether or not they touched something that touched a dead body. And then furthermore, for Christians, New Testament Christians who are part of the New Covenant and not under the Old Covenant, you might say, okay, what does that even have to do with me? I don't have to worry about being ceremonially unclean. So it might seem kind of distant and foreign to us, but I want to tell you it wasn't foreign and distant for those who were wandering in the wilderness. Encountering death was a regular occurrence for them. You think, you think about it, going through um, the history of Israel, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But 
It was after the incident with the spies. Remember when the spies went in to spy the land and two had uh, a faith-filled report, Joshua and Caleb, but then the other spies had a report that spread through the camp and then fear and unbelief just kind of as it were was just manifested in such great degree among the people. And as a result of the people's unbelief, God had issued a decree that the adult generation that had been brought out of Israelite bondage, that adult generation would die in the wilderness. That meant a lot of people were going to die in the wilderness. So during the 38 subsequent years of wilderness wanderings, the entire generation, adult generation of those who left Egypt outside of Joshua and Caleb and outside of their children would not enter the promised land. Rather, they would die in the wilderness. That means a lot of people were going to die in the wilderness. Now, just from a narrative standpoint, if you were just reading through the book of Numbers, you know that already, in light of that, people are going to be dying as it were left and right until that whole adult generation is gone outside of Joshua and Caleb. But they do also see some instances, like Numbers 16, Numbers 25, of big amounts of people dying. You see that in Numbers 16 and Numbers 25. Such events aside, you could see that on a regular basis, people would either come into contact with corpses Somebody might die in the tent in which multiple people were living in. Somebody might touch something that a dead body had touched. There were all of these ways in which somebody could become ceremonially unclean and then would have to stay outside of the camp. And that could mean if you didn't obey those uh, precepts of cleanness, you could die as a result. Numbers 17, 12-13, you can see at least that's the expectation of the people. Uh, You could be cut off from Israel. We see that rather explicitly in Numbers 19.13. But there was an appointed means of expedited purification. A a means of having that purification happening, at least probably better said, at a less of a cost and less of an inconvenience, to use language from one commentator. And we'll get into that, what that means. It's one of the ways in which this red heifer offering is rather unique and distinct from other offerings in the Old Testament. Now, big picture, sin, we know, brings death. And it brings defilement, and it brings separation. But God in His grace provides cleansing and reconciliation to the end that His people might not be excluded from His presence. We're reminded of that in Numbers 19, right? Death brings defilement. And where does death come from? Death comes from sin. So sin brings death, which brings defilement, which brings a disconnection from the camp of the Lord. It brings separation from Him. But God, in His grace, provides a means of cleansing so that His people might not be excluded from His presence. So let's read Numbers 19, verses 1-10. through And let's see what the Old Testament says about the ritual of the red heifer. And then, as we look at each verse, we'll see who the heifer and the ceremony remind us of. In Numbers 19, verses 1-10, through we read, Then the Lord, or Yahweh, spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. 
Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with, its, with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide and its flesh, and its blood with its refuse, refuse shall be burned. Then the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening, and it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. Now you can go on and you can see some of the ways in which this offering and the ashes of the red heifer were to be applied. So there's more that could be said, but we're kind of focusing in on the ritual here, and we'll consider some of the application as we go along. So Numbers 19, if you look at verse 1, it begins with Yahweh speaking to Moses and Aaron. Now, if you were to read the previous chapter, you'll see that God spoke to them separately. He spoke to Aaron separately, he spoke to Moses separately, and here in verse 1, now we see them both being addressed together. And as they're addressed together, Yahweh begins, if you look at verse 2, by communicating the statute of the law concerning how the sons of Israel were to bring an unblemished heifer, red heifer, in which there is no defect and upon which no yoke has been placed. Now this was a unique sacrifice in the Old Testament in a few ways, some of which are seen here. First, this was the only sacrifice in the Old Testament where a specific color was prescribed. The offering was to be a red heifer. It was to be a red cow. It was also unique in that it was a female animal that was to be offered. Like other offerings, however, the heifer was to be unblemished. Unblemished. In other words, it was to be without spots, without scabs, without malformations of any kind. So when you looked at the red heifer, when you looked it over, you didn't find any of those things. Now, multiple commentators note that in the years ahead, that Jews would then also say that you know, three white hairs on any part of the body would make it unfit for the purpose. And we know, nonetheless, that the heifer needed to be red. And furthermore, something else you see is that there was never to have been a yoke placed upon it. In other words, there was never to be a yoke placed upon it, meaning that this heifer was never to be used for common usage. It was never to be used for pulling a cart or for plowing. It was kept from common use. Now already, we're just two verses in, and doubtless you probably already have seen language that has remind you, reminded you of your Savior. Reminiscent, isn't it? that our Savior, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, is identified as a lamb without blemish or spot. 
And you see that kind of language in Old Testament offerings, without spot, without blemish, that kind of language immediately, and from a new covenant mindset, you're like, that reminds me of Jesus. So the fact that these kind of offerings, like the red heifer, had to be without spot, it's pointing to something beyond itself. Not only does the Lord deserve such an offering in that moment, but it was meant to point beyond itself to the one who would come. The most unique of any offering that would ever be offered. God's eternally begotten Son who would take on flesh. Yes, the red heifer was unique. A unique offering in many ways. But the only begotten Son of God is the most unique offering. And He was the one who was to be the unblemished sacrifice par excellence. So an unblemished sacrifice, when you see that in the Old Testament, you're thinking of the forthcoming one in that context. The one who knew no sin, to use language from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and who would offer himself up to God without blemish, Hebrews 9.14. So we can say that rather clearly. I think it's worth noting that perhaps, perhaps, the fact that the heifer never bore a yoke reminds us of how our Savior, although born of a woman and born under the law, was never under the yoke or servitude of, say, sin. Jesus, we think, walked in the perfect liberty of holiness, always desiring to do His Father's will. He did not have to be constrained or restrained in any way. There was never a yoke upon Him in that sense, if you will. Everything He did was out of the volition of holiness and goodness and righteousness. In Him is no sin. Everything He did just flowed from who He was. Never knew the yoke of bondage to sin. He is the one who, for instance, said that no one took his life from him, but he laid it down willingly. Now, what about the fact that the heifer was red? The fact that the heifer was red. Well, that that could point to a number of things. I've seen many things suggested. One possibility, it could point to the physical body of man, seeing that the name Adam in Hebrew possibly stems from the from a root word that means red and possibly then has an allusion to, at least at a minimum, some argue it could be literally rendered this, but at least there's an allusion perhaps to the red dirt from which man was formed. It's one possibility. The fact that the heifer was red could remind us of our sin, though our sin be as crimson or as scarlet. It could also remind us of the blood through which comes the remission of sins. Now back to Numbers 19. When you look at verse 3, we now see the process begin. What was the process? Eleazar the priest was to take the heifer outside of the camp and slaughter it. Or perhaps better understood, he was to have it slaughtered before him. Because when you go through these verses, even as we just read, it looks like there were other people involved in the process. So it's possible that Eleazar the priest is kind of ushering these events along, but he's not necessarily the one who's slaughtering the red heifer. He's there as it happens. Note, this is happening outside of the camp. The offering's not being offered on the altar. It's happening outside of the camp. And perhaps the reason why Eleazar would be involved in this process as opposed to Aaron the high priest is because Aaron's involvement could have rendered him unclean. And if he was rendered unclean as high priest, he could be impeded even if temporarily from his high priestly duties and that wouldn't be something that ought to be done. Perhaps... Well, given the process that um, those who were involved in this would be made unclean, the slaughtering of the heifer took place outside of the camp. 
Because you, you go through this chapter, even as we just read, people who are involved in this are just getting unclean in the process. So that helps you understand why this is happening outside of the camp, at least in part why it's happening outside of the camp. What was outside of the camp? Or perhaps better said, who was outside of the camp? Well, for example, people that you'd find outside of the camp would be those who were leprous. Outside of the camp, you'd find the leper. Outside of the camp, as Matthew Poole notes, per Leviticus 24.14, it was the place where malefactors suffered. It was the place where, say, somebody who had blasphemed would be brought and they would be stoned. And perhaps already again, the language of this ceremony is sounding familiar to New Testament ears. According to the writer of Hebrews, we're told that our Lord suffered. But where did He suffer? Outside of the camp. Outside of the gate of Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. And not only that, He suffered outside of the camp. Even as the red heifer was to be brought outside the camp. But He was also slain amidst malefactors. Two criminals hanging on either side of Him. You could see Luke 22, verses 39 through 43. Even as the prophet Isaiah said that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. So we're just three verses in. And if you leave aside the fact that there's just the address in verse 1, we're already seeing some parallels here. That there's this unique offering, unlike other offerings in the Old Testament, that it had to be unblemished, it was to be offered. Maybe some other pointers in the fact that there was never a yoke put on it. The fact that this offering was to be brought outside the camp and was to be slaughtered. But we go on. We see in verse 4 that Eleazar, the priest, was to take some of its blood with his finger and he was to sprinkle it, some of the blood, towards the tent of meeting seven times. Seven being a number, as we know, of completeness or perfection can speak to how the heifer was wholly dedicated unto God taking the blood, pointing it in the direction of the tent of meeting, because he's likely outside of the camp, but nonetheless, with reference to the sanctuary, is unto God. He takes some of the blood on his finger, and he points it towards, sprinkles it towards the front of the tent of meeting. Furthermore, although outside of the camp, as I just noted, the direction to which the blood was sprinkled was towards the sanctuary, likely looking, as it were, towards the mercy seat in the hopes of acceptance. Now even this, even this is reminiscent of our Savior, who although suffering outside of the camp, nonetheless, per Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, offered Himself up to God. Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. He's outside of the camp, but He's got a view towards the sanctuary, as it were, that He's offering Himself up to God. I, I think... Furthermore, it's at least reminiscent, this passage, verse 4, of how the Spirit of God, referred to, at least by implication, by Jesus as the finger of God, how the Holy Spirit sprinkles the blood of Christ upon the hearts of the people of God, whereby they are freed from an evil conscience. So I think we even see a little bit of a reminder here of the work of the Holy Spirit. But before we go on, just a little bit more of an understanding about sprinkling. You see that language, sprinkling? 
We see that language used in the, Old, in the New Testament as well to help us understand what Christ has done for us. Now, we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, but if you don't know what that really meant in the Old Testament, you're not going to appreciate what its significance is in the New Covenant. See, in the Old Covenant, for instance, the sprinkling of blood was done when Israel first entered into the Old Covenant with Yahweh. You see that in Exodus 24. So when they entered into the covenant, some of the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the people. They had entered into the covenant. But then in, say, the case of the leper, the blood of the sacrifice, as we're going to see as well, along with the cedar wood, the scarlet, and the hyssop, was to be sprinkled on the leper who was to be cleansed. In like manner, Christians are recipients of the sprinkling of Christ's blood upon entry into the covenant. And you could argue continually for the cleansing that they need. And draw language from different New Testament Scriptures. We draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. So you hear Old Testament language of sprinkling? You think, that's me! I draw near to God now because I've been sanctified. The blood of Christ, as it were, has been sprinkled upon my heart. I can draw near to God without an evil conscience. Christians have come to Jesus Christ. He's the mediator of a new covenant. And two, we come to the sprinkled blood which speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 12.24 Jesus is the prophesied suffering servant who, it was said, would sprinkle many nations. See, He wouldn't just sprinkle the Jewish people with His blood or the elect Jews but He would sprinkle many nations. More about that when we get to verse 10. By the way, Peter, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he speaks of this as a reality for the Christian. We are those who have been sprinkled with His blood. Now we go to verse 5. In verse 5, we see that the heifer was wholly or completely burned in Eleazar's sight. Now, again, that could likely imply that somebody else was helping Eleazar in this process. So the skin, the flesh, the blood, the refuse, all were to be burned together. Now, uniquely, what else made this offering different than other Old Testament offerings? Uniquely, the blood of the sacrifice outside of that which was taken by Eleazar and then sprinkled towards the tent of meeting, the blood was to stay in the sacrifice. And it was to be burned with the carcass. So like this is happening outside of the camp. The whole offering was completely consumed. And outside of the blood that was used for sprinkling, there was nothing left but ashes. But ashes. The offering was a fully consumed offering unto God. And perhaps even in that, we're reminded of the sufferings of our Lord, who was fully consumed, as it were, on our behalf. Some suggest the extent of our Lord's sufferings are implied in the red heifer's burning, it being consumed and consumed completely, to depict for us, though in an imperfect and creaturely way, the way in which Jesus consumed, as it were, the wrath of God that we deserve. He was consumed by it, and He consumed it on our behalf. Perhaps some of the language too, perhaps. The fact that the entirety of the offering, including the refuse, was to be burned. Perhaps that could speak to um, the shame, the shame that Jesus bore on our behalf, becoming accursed for His people. 
And we get to verse 6. And in verse 6 we see that the priest, Eleazar, would take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire burning the heifer. Now, interestingly, if you looked in Leviticus 14, all of these were used in the leper's cleansing. You look a little bit later on in this chapter and you could see that dynamic as well. But here we see them, interestingly, thrown into the fire. Thrown into the fire. Now again, some, some of the ways in which this whole ceremony um, is connected to Christ are rather clear, right? An unblemished offering, a completely unique offering, an offering that was offered outside of the camp. And then there are some where we can't necessarily definitively connect it with New Testament connections, but we could at least draw some reasonable hypotheses. You say, okay, why, why these things? Why these things? Well, one commentator notes that the cedar wood is said to have been an emblem of fragrance. An emblem of fragrance. So in the midst of this offering that was burning, perhaps that fragrant cedar wood would represent how our Lord's sacrifice would be a well-pleasing offering to the Lord. It would be that which brings forth a sweet-smelling aroma. Cedar wood perhaps draws our minds as New Covenant Christians to the cross. I'm not saying it was made of cedar, but nonetheless, it draws you to the cross. When you look further and you see hyssop, you say, okay, hyssop, that recalls, at least in my mind, David, Psalm 51, right? Cleanse me with hyssop. You know, hyssop was involved in the cleansing of a leper. And that may be part of what David had in mind when he knew that he needed to be cleansed. Like, I'm as dirty, I'm as, I'm as dirty as a leper because of my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop. So the implication here might be cleansing. Cleansing that would come from this offering. And then there's scarlet. You could just look through uh, just a bunch of references in the Old Testament, New Testament alike and see scarlet connected with this, scarlet connected with that, scarlet connected with um, curtains in the Old Covenant um, tabernacles, scarlet connected with um, the robe that was placed upon Jesus. Draws your mind to that. It could be connected with a bunch of things, but again, for us, perhaps it reminds us of sin. Our sin being as scarlet and the fact that the remission of sins would come through blood. So perhaps those two things are also for us to be reminded of. Now, interestingly, um, we're reminded that those who would have to do this, we see in verse 7, the priest, they were to wash their clothes and bathe in water, and then afterwards he could come into the camp, but he was unclean till evening. Now, one of the things that's rather interesting about this whole process, we'll see this in verse 7, we'll see it in verse 8, we'll see it again and again, is that those who are involved in this process become unclean in the process. So you're actually undertaking a ceremony that's going to make others clean, yet you're becoming unclean in the process of undertaking that which would make others clean. Rather interesting. So verse 7, you look there, that the priest was to wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and then afterwards he could come into the camp and he'd be unclean till evening. Look at verse 8. We're told that the one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean to evening. So I call your attention here to the fact that these priests who were doing this, at least accompanying Eleazar, they were undertaking in some way a cost. 
they were bearing a cost for their participation in this ceremony. Again, a ceremony that would be used to help others become clean. Because what was this doing? If you were dirty and you needed, if you were unclean and you needed to offer a sin offering, it could be a project. It could be expensive. You would have to go buy an offering. You'd have to make sure the offering was a good one. Then you'd have to bring the offering, have it sacrificed. It could be an expensive thing to undergo. But God is setting up this system via the red heifer whereby this sacrifice could happen and the process could become a lot easier for the people who would be in need of cleansing. More about that in a moment. But for those who would participate in this, they would become unclean. Think about this further though. What did that mean? If they became unclean, what did it mean in the old covenant sense? Well, if you were unclean, uncleanness meant to separation. You had to be outside of the camp until evening. So it represented what sin does. It separates us from God. So these priests who were undertaking this would become unclean. They were separated so that they could partake in something that would help others not be separated from the camp. You probably see where I'm going with this already. They bore separation to be a part of bringing cleansing to others. In that, we are reminded what the Son of God bore on our behalf. That relational disruption, as it were, on the cross. That forsakenness that we deserved. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He was the one who was brought outside of the camp. He was the one who, in His body, as it were, bore the outer darkness that we deserved. He is the one who bore the cost so that we could be recipients of the blessing of His sacrifice. And I think that's pointed to in the red heifer ceremony. The priests are going out. They're involved in this process. They become dirty. They have to be separated. But through what they're doing, others will be brought near. And that, I think, points to the work of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we wouldn't be separated outside of the camp into the outer darkness where the fire continues to burn and so on. He did that so that we could be brought near, redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. We are brought near because of what Christ has done. He endured uncleanness. And in some way, that transcends our ability to understand forsakenness that He endured on our behalf. And then we're told that the man who is clean, that the man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside of the camp in a clean place. And those ashes were to be kept for the water, for impurity, for the congregation of the people of Israel, and it was to be regarded as a sin offering. You see that right there? Now you're seeing why, at least in Old Covenant context, why this was happening. It was to be regarded as what? A sin offering. What were they gathering up? They were gathering up the ashes, right? So they gathered up the ashes of the red heifer. Those ashes were to be kept, put in a clean place. It would be used for the water of cleansing. So later on in the chapter, we see what they were to do with the ashes. If somebody needed to be clean, rather than going and offering a sin offering, they could become clean in light of an offering that had already been offered. So what they would do is that they would come and then it would be administered to them. And you see this a little bit later on in Numbers 10. The ashes and the water and the details are provided so on in Numbers 10. And they would receive the benefit in the present of an offering that had been made in the past. And does that not remind us 
of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we are. We're still singing about it. We're singing about the blood. The blood of Christ that washes away our sins. The blood of Christ that never loses its power. The blood of Christ. We're looking back at an offering that happened long ago, about 2,000 years ago. Yet the efficacy of that sacrifice continues. Every time a sinner comes to the cross, there is cleansing that happens. When the Holy Spirit of God opens a person's eyes, they're washed in that moment by the washing of regeneration. They're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. They are cleansed through faith, to use language from Acts 15. And in that moment, they are receiving the benefit in the present of a sacrifice that happened in the past. And very uniquely, this red heifer points to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in that sense. Hallelujah. Now again, I just kind of alluded to it, but I'll just kind of unpack this briefly. When you see that language, water of cleansing, it should remind you of quite a few things New Testament-wise, right? Reminds you of the water of the Word, right? We're washed with the water of the Word. Ephesians 5.26 We know that Jesus sanctified His bride, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word. So it's reminiscent of what the Word does. We saw this last week as Elder Joe was teaching through Ephesians. But then we're reminded of the work of the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, that we were saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's also reminiscent of how our God cleanses the hearts of His people, to use language from Acts 15, 9, by faith. By faith. So this sacrifice, right, that would be burned and then the ashes would be put into water and that water would become a water of cleansing. But don't forget what it was regarded as. It was regarded as a sin offering. And we know that Jesus bore our sins upon the tree. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. We know per the prophet Isaiah, He made His soul an offering for sin. He is our sin offering. The once and for all sin offering. And similarly, to what, to, to what we read in verse 8, we look at verse 10, we find that the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. Maybe, maybe we're seeing here some, some, some degrees of uncleanness. Because we don't see that kind of language of taking his whole body, being you know, having to take a bath. So maybe there's some degrees of uncleanness that are witnessed to there. But again, there was separation. Why was there separation? Why did he become unclean? He was clean. He goes and he gets the ashes. Now he becomes unclean. Why? I think the answer is because the participation in some shape or manner with death. And death comes from sin. The last thing I want to call your attention to in Numbers is this. Did you notice the second half of Numbers 19.10? It reads, And it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien, the foreigner, who sojourns among them. So even in the sacrifice of the red heifer, not only was it an unblemished offering, which points to the unblemished offering, that is Jesus Christ. Not only did it happen outside of the camp, even as Christ was crucified outside of the camp, Not only was it a perfect offering, a consumed, wholly consumed offering, even as our Lord was. Not only was it an offering that would happen in the past that would have efficacy in the future, but it would be something that would be for Jew and Gentile alike 
for the Jew and for the foreigner. Even as it was prophesied that Jesus would sprinkle many nations with his blood. Even as in Revelation we see that he would redeem people from every tribe, kindred, and tongue. He is a Savior not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. He is a Savior for the world, for people from every tribe, kindred, and tongue. Witness to here in the red heifer sacrifice and ceremony. This is the significance of the red heifer. The red heifer is an arrow that points to something and someone infinitely greater than itself. And before we close, let's see what the writer of Hebrews has to say. It's not difficult to see how the red heifer points to the work of Christ and the work of our Savior. But let's see in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 14, what the writer of Hebrews says. I'll read the text to you. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here we see the writer of Hebrews using a how much more argument. A how much more argument. So first, if you were to look at verse 13, you would see that he's essentially referencing the Day of Atonement. He says, for if the blood of goats and bulls. So on the Day of Atonement, there would be um, those animals involved in the liturgy, if you will. Right? There would be a bull that would be sacrificed, and the bull would be sacrificed for the high priest himself. There would be two goats that would be involved in the Day of Atonement. One would become the scapegoat, and the one upon whom the lot fell would be the goat that became a sacrificial offering. And that goat would be offered for sins of the people. And both of those sacrifices were sufficient to bring about cleansing in a limited sense. The writer of Hebrews goes on. He goes on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 to say, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So they brought cleansing in a ceremonial, in a, in a limited sense, but they couldn't bring about the removal of sin. As a result, you see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, the people, understandably and rightly, had continuous awareness and consciousness of their sins. So the blood of bulls and goats, it could cleanse, if you will, externally, but it couldn't cleanse internally. It couldn't reach down into a person's person's conscience and cleanse their conscience of all that they had done. Now, in like manner, here we see the red heifer's reference in the New Testament. In like manner, the ashes of the red heifer, which was mixed with water, reserved outside of the camp, and sprinkled upon the people... It was sufficient to remove the ceremonial defilement that they had undergone, or the defilement of the flesh, having come into some contact, some form of contact with death or with a corpse or something that touched a corpse and so on. And here's where the how much more argument comes in. The writer of Hebrews is saying, if those sacrifices could do that, like if a bull and a goat could be used in the liturgy of the Day of Atonement, if a red heifer could be used to bring people who were unclean from outside of the camp into the camp, how much more will the blood of Christ... That's the argument. You see the flow of it? You see, this this brings you 
far closer. It brings you into union with God. It brings you into the everlasting kingdom. You threw it, to use language a little bit earlier, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, you obtain eternal redemption. You've been ransomed. You've been bought, not just for a time, not just for a season, but for eternity. You've obtained eternal redemption. So you've got all these beautiful pictures that you can find in the book of Hebrews that God will remember our sins no more, and so on. But then you see, in verse 14, the how much more argument hones in on the conscience. It hones in on the conscience. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God. See the Trinity there, by the way? The Son is offering Himself to God. Through the Spirit, how much more will this cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. To serve the living God. So it doesn't just cleanse you. The blood of Christ doesn't just cleanse you externally. It secures for you a glorified body. It does do that. But the blood of Christ cleanses you internally. And here, sticking with the language of Hebrews 9.14, it cleanses a person's conscience. It cleanses a person in his or her most innermost being. It cleanses a people's conscience from dead works. Just, just those works that are dead. Done by dead people. <laughs> We're dead in trespasses and sins. So the works that we do, good or bad, they're dead works. Dead works done by dead people can't get us into the presence of the living God. But as dead people who are dead in sins, we do a lot of bad things. And the blood of Christ is meant to secure for us eternal redemption. It doesn't have an expiration date. It never loses its efficacy. And it's supposed to cleanse our conscience. So you don't have to live with a constant gnawing in your mind as though you've got mental termites that are just eating away at you in light of who you have been in the past and what you did. The blood of Christ is that powerful. It cleanses you. You don't have to carry that. If the God who knows everything says, I'll remember your iniquities no more, (laughs) why do you keep remembering them? And why do you act as though the blood is powerful enough to wash other people's consciences, but not yours? Be diligent, to use language from 2 Peter 3.14. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, knowing that you are forgiven. You have a conscience that's been cleansed from dead works. What if Christ cleanses from all kinds of dead works? And the last thing I just want to show you is this. It's not just that you have been cleansed and then you sit on the sidelines as though you are just some, you know, um, heirloom of grace. (laughs) You know, you've been saved and now we'll just keep you over here. Um, The language in Hebrews 9 is beautiful. The language in Hebrews 9 is that he cleanses our conscience from did works to what? To serve the living God. We, having been cleansed from sinfulness and uncleanness, are brought into service. Into the service of the living God. So instead of fruitless engagement in dead works, we receive endless life to forever serve the living God. You know, a lot of people will sometimes think, understandably, I wonder what heaven is like. I wonder what the new earth and the new 
uh, New Jerusalem. I wonder what that all is going to be like. Well, one of the things you know about what it's going to be like is that you know that His servants will serve Him and see His face. You've been saved for service in the present and for all of eternity. So don't put yourself on the sidelines. To go back to something I said earlier, don't seek to retreat to a place of normalcy, a, a kind of created, you know, your own cave of Adullam, as it were. I want to retreat to some measure of normalcy. I would just say, and I would encourage you, engage in fruitful service. It's not a retreat. It's a kind of proactive going forward in the work of God. The red heifer then points well beyond itself. It was part of a whole Levitical system, a Levitical system that pointed, to use language from Hebrews 9.11, to the good things to come. The priesthood, the high priest, the sacrifices pointed to the good things to come. The red heifer was one of many Old Testament shadows whose reality is to be found in Christ. Just by one closing uh, summation, the red heifer was a unique offering. It was a one-of-a-kind offering in the Old Testament. It was an unblemished offering, even as our Savior is the unblemished offering for sinners like us. It was taken outside of the camp, even as Jesus went outside of the camp, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the city, bearing the sins of His people so that we wouldn't be outside of the kingdom of God and that we wouldn't be outside of everlasting darkness. Just as the priests involved in the process became unclean, our Savior, as it were, became sin on our behalf. He bore our uncleanness. He was made a curse for us so that we could be cleansed. He was the one who was consumed and absorbed the wrath of God so that we wouldn't spend eternity bearing that which would forever consume us. He was the priest, the sacrifice, who sacrificed Himself. And He cleanses all that come to Him through the sprinkling of His blood like the red heifer, a sacrifice done in the past that continues to have effectiveness in the present and the future. If you come to Him, if you haven't already, if you do come to Him today, and I, and, and I would plead with you too. You have all these beautiful pictures in the Scriptures pointing, pointing, as it were, crying out. To use language from Proverbs 1, it's like wisdom crying aloud, saying, turn, turn, come, look what He's done. Look at all the ways in which God has prepared forgiveness and cleansing for sinners. Look at all these types and shadows. What a gracious God to do these things so that we wouldn't miss it, as it were, yet we are so blinded by our sins. But if in this moment the Holy Spirit is so prodding your heart, I would plead with you by the grace of God to come to Christ. Come to the one to whom the red heifer pointed and have your conscience cleansed from all those dead works. You could suppress your conscience. You know what you've done. You don't need to spend the rest of your life trying to suppress it. You can come to Christ and He will cleanse it. And there will forever be a flow that will cleanse you having been cleansed, but then you can have that practical, ongoing cleansing as it were as well. And then with the fullness of fervor, you could serve the living God, Hebrews 9.14. And as you sin against Him, may you hate your sin, truly. May you turn from it. But may the Spirit of God apply, as it were, if you will, fresh measures to your conscience of that sprinkling that sprinkling that was the once and for all sprinkling that you had when you came into the covenant, yet that continual cleansing that we need practically in our lives. 
If you haven't come to Christ, may today be the day. The offering has been made. The offering has been consumed. But you need to come and by the grace of God believe and receive the gospel in order to be a beneficiary of it. See, somebody, just in, in, in the Old Testament context, somebody couldn't say, oh great, the red heifer was sacrificed and the ashes are over there mingled with water, therefore I guess I'm clean. No, it didn't work that way. You had to actually go and then you had to be cleansed. You had to actually appropriate the ashes and the water and so on as described in the latter part of Numbers 10. The work has been done, but the question is, by the grace of God, will you, by His grace, come, believe the Gospel, and receive that cleansing? May you come. May you come. Believe and receive cleansing. I think one, one other thing I liked about comparing this with the work of Christ. You notice how those who were involved in this process were to be unclean until evening. And if you go on in the chapter, you'll see that the people who were cleansed still had to wait. But the amazing thing is when you come to Christ, in the moment that you believe, you are cleansed. You are a new creation. You go from death to life in that moment. You don't have to wait. It's not like somebody comes to Christ and we say, wait in that other room for seven days or three days and then we'll preach the gospel to you again and seven days go get Numbers 10 in the end and you'll see kind of the parallels there. You are cleansed in that moment. What a cause for rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for such a an amazing picture. Who are we? We are rebels in and of ourselves, Lord. Um, by nature and by choice. We've loved darkness rather than light. Lord, we've played with fire more times than we could count and we've been burned. Yet in our fallen natures, Lord, we know that we, 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 we are drawn to that which is against Your will. But we thank You, Lord. We thank You that for those who are in Christ Jesus... You have taken up residence in such ones by Your Spirit. You have cleansed such ones with the sprinkling of Your blood. Hallelujah. And thank You that we could be cleansed in our consciences from dead works. And we thank You that we could serve the living God. So Father, I pray for Your people that in light of seeing this picture, may You be worshipped. May You be exalted, Lord God, in our praises. May You be extolled in our hearts, Heavenly Father. May we celebrate what the red heifer pointed to, namely the person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we love Your Word, continue to ingest it and be renewed by it, having our hearts illuminated from it, Lord. May it be. And may You, Heavenly Father, both now and in the days ahead, continue to fan the flames of fervency, Lord, so that we might serve the living God in this vapor of a life with the best of what we have. Lord, we know that we will not be spotless and unblemished in and of ourselves this side of the coming of Christ or this side of us being in Your presence in heaven. We know we will not be that in that perfect sense even as Christ was, but knowing, Heavenly Father, that You tell us in 2 Peter 3, to be diligent, to be found without spot and blemish. Oh, in light of that perfect, unblemished offering who we love, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of love for Him, out of love for the Gospel, out of love for You, Father, may You find us pursuing that end with diligence. May it be an outflow of love as those who have been consecrated, brought into the covenant, and now serve the King as priests. Hallelujah. And Father, if there be anyone in this room 
or anyone hearing this, Lord, who hasn't come to the Savior, oh, Father, may You open their eyes, Lord, and may they receive the washing of regeneration, the washing that comes from the Word, the washing that is received by faith, the washing that can only be secured through that once and for all offering that will never lose its efficacy. We ask, Father, these things for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.